The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera, Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today's guest, like so many of our guests, is a longtime friend of mine. I am not above using my friends for fun podcasts. And so I've invited Karen Guilfrey to join us today. Karen grew up around opera, what I like to formally call operatic royalty, although it was the least pretentious family I think I've ever known. Her dad is uh, operatic baritone Rodney Guilfrey. And Karen herself was on her way to becoming a real star mezzo-soprano, but she found herself drawn in a very different direction. Now a sought-after and highly successful voiceover artist, Karen and her family just relocated to her native San Bernardino County. She's talking to us from her studio there. We are so happy to welcome her to Ghostlight to share her journey. Thanks for coming, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's really great to have you. Let's start at the beginning, though. What's your first memory of opera you grew up in that world and i'm also curious whether or not you felt any pressure as a youngster to go into the family business so to speak yeah so um i i don't remember i don't have a memory of my first opera because i think that i was three weeks old when my parents brought me backstage to an opera that my dad was doing at the LA Opera. And uh, there's a picture of him holding me as a brand new baby dressed, I think, as some kind of count or Don Giovanni or something like that. Um, And my mom would just sit in the dressing room and listen to the opera with me sleeping or doing baby things (laughs) back there. So I don't really remember my first opera, um, but I do remember... You know, we lived in Switzerland when I was a kid. I had so many, I had so many wonderful experiences tied to opera and the opera world growing up, and I think it really shaped who I am today in so many ways. We met in Santa Fe at a certain point, and you were already well into the opera world. How did you find your first steps into the opera world? Because my dad was an opera singer, uh, I actually never wanted to be an opera singer. And they they did not pressure us at all, except that my mom always said that we had to play a musical instrument or sing. That was like one of our family rules. We had to be playing a musical instrument or singing at some point (laughs) in every every stage of our development. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to do musical theater and, and or pop or be a TV star or something like that. I definitely wanted to be some kind of performer because I saw how enriching that was for my family and how, and it just kind of jived with who I was, you know. Um, But opera was not on my radar until I got into high school and there was a a singing competition and the the prize money was $100, which for a 14-year-old was like so much money. (laughs) And, And the opera category was empty. And so I was like, oh, I could probably sing an aria. So I signed up. Um, I learned an aria. It uh, there was only there were only two other people who signed up in that category with me, and I won a hundred dollars. So from that moment on, I was like, okay, opera is like I'm going to study this, and I'm going to get better so that next year I can win another hundred dollars. And then in <laughs> in studying it, I I I 
ended up really loving it. There were so many parts of opera that really um, matched me. Having grown up in Europe, I, I was exposed to a lot of different languages, and so singing in other languages was really great. And and um, yeah, but my dad never pressured me to do it. He was always proud. My mom was always proud, but they were like, do whatever you like. We will support you in whatever you want to do. Um, and yeah, so there wasn't a lot of pressure. Yeah, that doesn't side. surprise me at all. I mean, what I know of your dad and I've gotten to work with him a couple of times and meet your mom and you know, they're just salt of the earth. So they're so fun. And, and they, I know that it's really hard to be a parent and an opera singer. But they made my childhood so fantastic. It was just love and and creativity and performing all around. They made it look really easy, even though I know it was not easy. My mom was solo parenting like at least six months out of the year. Um, and my dad, you know, hated being away from us, even though he loved his career. So it wasn't hard, but they they just made it so awesome for us. I feel very fortunate. Yeah, the opera life is truly a vagabond life for sure. It's months away from home. So I'm, I'm sure you've seen the world through your dad's career. But, yeah. you know, obviously you weren't making memory imprints at three weeks old. But I wonder if your memory might be a little clearer about the moment you decided that opera wasn't going to be a professional pursuit for you. When, when did that happen? When did you decide that maybe something else? Yeah, I think it was just... In, in general, going to the opera as a kid, you had to dress up in fancy clothes. We had to be on our best behavior. We had to stay up late, which was kind of cool, I guess. But we were really it was really children entering an adult world, um, especially when your dad is the performer. And so we had to learn very early on how to interact with adults. And and that wasn't as fun as what I thought musical theater would be or what I thought being in a movie would be. Um, so it was more just the stuffiness of opera that I didn't like as a kid. And that's why I decided not to do it. And it just wasn't cool among my friends. I was in, I was in children's theater. We were doing like Peter Pan and Oliver and the music man. And we were all like, so, you know, 10 and 11 and 12, like really into that. (laughs) And opera was just not on anyone's radar. It was not cool. And the media kind of portrays opera as stuffy too. And I think that had a lot to do with it, too. Even though I, I knew who my dad was and I knew what it really was, I was really influenced by how it, it's portrayed in the world. But you did find your way into opera studies in university, and you had great success, really, in your first steps into the operatic world. And I know um, this must be a really amazing memory you did a show with your dad in Paris yes we did the sound of music together at the Théâtre du Châtelet and he was Captain Von Trapp and I was Liesel it was my first year after I graduated uh, with my master's from Juilliard my first kind of experience in the real professional world being paid as a, a soloist and it was awesome. It was like, and my dad is just the most fun guy. And so we lived for three months together in Paris in an apartment. I was in my 20s. He he was at the time looking for the ultimate restaurant to take my mom to for their 30th wedding anniversary. And uh, and so he, he was like, we got to try out all the best restaurants. So we <laughs> went to all the best restaurants. It was just such a great experience. It was yes. so fun. So you were really poised to 
potentially do a lot of things in the operatic world. What drew you away and into this other world? It's it's interesting. Um, it was a combination. It was a combination of a few things. Um, one, I'm a person who likes to be very busy. And the opera career is like you're busy for four to six weeks and then you're not busy for sometimes months. You, you are living off the income that you made from the previous show and you're just sitting at home working on practicing and hoping for the next gig, right? So, so it was that. Um, but also I started to just not really do as well as I had in my master's. I was I was going down the path of the the right way to to have an opera career, but I just kind of fell out of love with it. Um, and then and then I had some like life and relationship things happen to me. I was in a relationship with another singer who was kind of competitive and didn't really want me to sing anymore, which was a little bit strange. Um, but that kind of just made me want to take back who I was at my core and find something that I could do that I could, I could still be a performer and, and, um, find something that, that was really fulfilling to me and not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily opera. So my big question for you, Karen, is how, I mean, all the experiences you're talking about don't lead me to believe that voiceover work was just something that was an obvious opportunity for you. So how did you find that? And talk a little bit about what you think from your operatic training has helped you be so successful in this completely different venture. Yeah, so um, I was in Switzerland um, at the time, uh, in between gigs, not a lot to do, and I needed a way, I couldn't do anything in Switzerland work-wise. I didn't have a work visa to work any other kind of job. Um, and. I needed to find a way to work remotely from the States. So I had this friend named Tim Campbell, who's also an opera singer. He, he uh, lives in L.A. And he was doing audiobooks. And I thought, oh, that's kind of something that I might be interested in. I also realized at that time that if I went back and thought about, like, what, what if, I, if I look at Kid Karin... And I think, like, what is the ultimate dream that Kid Karin had before this whole opera thing started? And my ultimate dream was to be a Disney princess. <laughs> right? So I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to be an actual Disney princess. But what can I do that's, like, Disney princess adjacent that I could possibly, like, just take the first step? Um, and voiceover seemed like that was the the kind of closest thing that I could do. And maybe someday I would work for Disney or maybe not or whatever that happened to be, right? So I started in audiobooks. I built a home studio in Switzerland, which was basically a bunch of couch pillows piled on top of a desk with a duvet over my head. Um, and I and I discovered that there are a bunch of online casting sites for all different kinds of voiceover. And I just dove into those. I took classes online. I took classes when I came home to L.A. Um, and I made some demos and I was just off to the races. The first year that I started doing voiceover, I think I narrated 40 different audiobooks, which wow, is a lot. Um, um, yeah, 
a lot of audiobooks, so, uh, many of them under a pseudonym because they were so bad I didn't want my name associated with them. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but yeah, I discovered that it was something that I really liked to do. It was very fulfilling. I could act. I could tell a story. I could use my voice in all different ways. Um, and, and my singing training really helped with that. What was a challenge was that uh, as an opera singer and a performer, people talk like this, right? Everyone's kind of, oh, it's the opera world, right? Oh. And, and you're kind of, you're very polished and you enunciate very well. And that's not what the world of commercial voiceover and audiobooks is. The best audiobook narrators sound like a person who is talking to you and telling you a story. The best commercials on TV are not people who are sounding like this, but it's people who it, it feels very intimate. It feels very real. They're selling you a product in quotation marks, but they're trying really hard not to sell you a product. Um, so that's something that I had to unlearn in order to do voiceover, which was challenging, but possible. So what are some of like an unexpected gig that you booked? Something that was a real blessing or a thrill to do? Well, I'll tell you the almost greatest experience of my life, <laughs> which starts out very bad. And that is that when I was first starting out, I was actually singing with New York City Opera and I was staying in a hotel narrating an audiobook. And I, I had to just finish 15 minutes of this book. So I thought I'll just make a quick like little closet studio inside this hotel closet I put my computer outside of the closet because it was making noise. I was inside the closet. I closed the door. I started to narrate. I made a mistake. And so I thought, okay, I'll just open the door and, and stop the computer and, and restart the recording. Only the closet did not open from the inside. And so I was trapped in a hotel closet for like 45 minutes. <laughs> And because my computer was outside of the closet door, I couldn't turn off the recording. So I realized that I was recording myself stuck in this closet. And I just, I basically laughed for 45 minutes as I was banging on the walls, yelling help, trying to use my iPad to call down on Skype to the front desk, trying to get, have anyone hear me. And eventually some German tourists walked um, down the hallway uh, and I could hear them from the closet. And so I started banging on the walls, yelling to them in German, because I thought if if I were in a foreign country and I heard someone yelling help to me in my own language, my brain would automatically like go to that. Right. So they came, they listened, they said in German, like, do you hear something? I don't know. And then they walked away and I was like, no, but they went to go get a maid. The maid let me out. So then I had this like 45 minute recording of me trapped in the closet and I cut it down into a smaller version and I would play it for friends at parties because it was just really funny. I was a huge podcast fan at the time, radio fan, and I thought, you know, this American life would really love this recording. So I sent them the recording with a pitch email. They loved it. They brought me into the studio and then they said when I was in the studio, you know, this would really be fun as an opera. And if this were an opera, you know, what would it be like? And I said, well, it would probably be like minimalist music. And uh, Ira Glass said to me, well, isn't that interesting? Because I have this cousin, Philip Glass. Um, <laughs> and he, this might just be something that's right up his alley. 
So Philip Glass wrote me a little aria. Matt O'Coin wrote a little 13-minute opera about me trapped in the closet. I hired a bunch of my friends through This American Life to uh, perform it with me on stage at BAM, and we performed it on stage. And it was so, so, so fun. <laughs> if you want to listen to it, it's the radio drama episode of This American Life. It's great. I mean, I think it's great because it's fun. <laughs> I've actually heard it, Karen, and I didn't you... realize that. I didn't put that together until exactly right now. What an amazing <laughs> story and an amazing connection. Just further proof that this world we all live in is very small, very, so very small. small. Let's, so small. Let's, let's talk about your successes, though, because this isn't just something you, you're dabbling with. You've, you're making a life doing this, and you're doing quite well. You're the voice of CBS. You've been nominated for Voice Arts Awards, which is kind of like your Oscars, right? So a voiceover, yeah. And I I really loved the work you did on the Lincoln Project ad, The Girl in the Mirror. It's Thank you. it's really moving, really fantastic. It made me want to ask you though, if this new profession, um, especially as it compares to the one that might have been, do you still think of yourself as a person who's creating art? Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the one of the things that I love about the Lincoln Project ads is that because political ads move so fast, um, there's often not time to like, I mean, now during COVID, we're not going into studios anyway. Everyone's recording from home. But there often isn't even time to have a directed session with the, the client. So they're not zooming in and directing me while I'm recording on my end in real time. They send me the script and they say, do what you're going to do with it and send us back a few takes. And so those Lincoln Project commercials are, are really my performance because all they're doing is sending me the script and letting me kind of do my thing. And that it feels so personal to me. Um, and, and I have other clients that do that as well. Uh, it's a little bit different when you're selling a product instead of, um, instead of something that you is kind of close to your heart, like a, like a, like a political ad, I guess. Um, especially because I have daughters and that, that ad in particular is about, is about daughters and girls and children. And so it, it's, it's very personal to me. So I really do feel like, I really do feel like I'm creating art. It's kind of the same with an audiobook. actually. You're, you're really performing that author's piece of work. And in, in most cases, this is the first time they've ever heard their work performed. And they might have imagined it as kind of like a movie or something. And you are bringing the words from the page to life. And that's that's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty fun. You know, knowing that that girl in the mirror was your undirected reaction to the material makes it even more incredible and that had i known that i wouldn't have even asked you the question because that is so clearly art that is so clearly creative work bravo really well and they they have done such a good job with these ads the music that they choose and the images that they choose and they're still editing it so it's not i don't i don't think they chose just one take front to back they're probably editing in the parts that they like we they sent me a few pickup lines I did a few re-records of some things so it's not one full take end to end but it is it is my interpretation of what they wrote and then them putting it together which I guess is like in a film they edit you edit in a film you edit in a podcast <laughs> no not at all this is live 
<laughs> Completely live. It's all spontaneous. <laughs> well, Corin, I I know this is probably it's it's like a, a novel where you just had no idea how it was gonna end. You probably didn't think that thirteen year old didn't think this is what you would be doing. And I am so pleased to see all of your success. And I hope you get to be that Disney princess someday. I can't imagine <laughs> a better princess. I've done some Disney princess toy ads. So it's like that's like Disney princess adjacent, but not quite Disney princess yet. I actually I don't do a lot of animation. I do commercials. I do e-training. I do on hold message systems. I do audiobooks, um, video games. I haven't done a lot of animation, though I would like to. Um, but, uh, yeah, voiceover is very, very, very diverse. There's lots of different kinds of voiceover you can oh, do. Did you, wait, I, I know I'm, I'm going off script here, but weren't you also like the hold voice for a German telecom company for a while? Oh yeah. I've done, I've done, uh, the on hold voice. I, I was the Swiss German on hold voice for Expedia for a while. Um, I do hold message systems for a ferry company called uh, P&O Ferries in English and German. Um, it, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's amazing. There's, there's What's of... the weirdest voice you had? Uh, the weirdest word you've had to say? I know I've seen you asking for pronunciations on things. Oh my god, I do a lot of medical narration. So all of those medical, like like brachiocephalic, or is it brachiocephalic? Gotta go look it up, right? Because I. <laughs> While I while I do love medicine, I'm not a trained doctor. <laughs> so there's all kinds of weird stuff. Well, you already kind of touched on our last question. You're not an actively performing operatic singer any longer, but you're still opera adjacent, just like Disney princess adjacent. Yeah. And you kind of answered this with your Ira Glass amazing story. But is there another subject, real or imagined, that you'd like to see made into an opera besides Karin's adventures in the hotel closet. So actually my mother's family, they are descendants of John Sutter of the gold rush. He was the man whose, whose, whose land was pillaged <laughs> um, during the gold rush. And he was a really interesting, weird guy. And it seems like his life story would make a great opera. There are all kinds of things that we were taught in school about him that are not true, both good and bad. And so, yeah, I, I would love to see somebody do the story of John Sutter. Well, opera is full of things that are not true, good and bad. So <laughs> I mean, I think there's plenty of room for all kinds of variations on that tale. <laughs> That's, That's a great one. So Karin, before we let you go, is there anything that you wish voiceover Karin could tell opera singer Karin? I just, I feel like, I feel like I've learned something from being a voice actor that I didn't know being a singer and, or slash classical musician. And the thing that I've learned from voiceover is that you are in charge of your career and your life. I feel like in the classical music world, we're always waiting for someone to open the door for us to win that next competition or to finally get a manager or to graduate school and get into the young artist program but so much of what i do now is because i opened the door for myself i contacted that person that i wanted to work with or i decided this is what i want to do what are the first steps that i need to take and what's the second step what's the third step that i need to take to get to the level that i want to be at 
And if more classical musicians and classical singers made opportunities for themselves and went out of their way to contact people at the highest level to, I don't know, open the doors for themselves, I think that people would feel so much more secure in their careers and so much more secure in in themselves as artists because they're not reliant on anyone else for their career. Well, Karin, this has been really amazing. It's it's great to talk to somebody that has found a path, you know, that started in opera but ended up someplace totally different and still doing such incredibly great work. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ghostlight Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcast. This helps us get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.